Journey to Pentecost, brought to you by the Greek Orthodox Christian Society of the Greek Orthodox Archdiocese of Australia. On the 21st of May, we celebrate the feast day of Saints Constantine and Saint Helen, equal to the Apostles. We're joined by Helen Magnus from the Greek Orthodox Ladies Group to reflect on the life and significance of this great emperor. Constantino Polias, group member at the Greek Orthodox Christian Society, will also provide us some tips on how to pray when we're away from church. We'll play you hymns chanted by the Sydney School of Byzantine Music, along with Greek traditional songs sung by the Greek Orthodox Christian Society, and the Opolitikio for today's feast day. This is The Journey to Pentecost. The feast day of Saints Constantine and Saint Helen, with Helen Magdus, from the Greek Orthodox Ladies Group. Saint Constantine was born in 272 and was the son of Constantius Chlorus and of Helen, who was a humble Christian. His father rose through the ranks to eventually become a co-ruler of the western part of the Roman Empire. As a young man, Constantine was forced to live at the court of Diocletian and Galerius, the co-rulers of the eastern part of the Roman Empire. He was held hostage, so to speak, to control any ambitions that his father may have. It may have happened that while the young Constantine was living at the court of Diocletian, that he may have witnessed the lives and martyrdoms of many Christians like St. George. His love for martyrs later on may have been inspired during this time at Diocletian's court. What was Constantine like as a young man living at the court of Diocletian? Well, Edward Gibbons, who wrote in the 18th century a massive and influential book called The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, describes the young Constantine with great admiration, even though Gibbons makes it quite clear throughout his book that he was critical of the church and partially blamed Christianity for the fall of the Roman Empire. This is what he writes about Constantine. The person as well as the mind of Constantine was enriched by nature with her best endowments. His stature was lofty, his countenance majestic, his deportment graceful, his strength and activity were displayed in every manly exercise. In the dispatch of business he was diligent. Even those who were critical of him were compelled to acknowledge that he possessed patience to execute the most demanding and difficult task. In the field, he infused his own intrepid spirit into the troops and conducted battles with the talents of a great general. 
Gibbons, who is anti-church and biased against Christianity, basically depicts Constantine as a young man of extraordinary gifts and abilities. In the Vesper service for the Feast of St. Constantine, we also hear about Constantine's gifts and abilities. This is what we chant in one of the hymns. You receive the advantages of abundant gifts from God, O mightiest King Constantine the Great, and you distinguish yourself in them. Through baptism you were illumined by the rays of the All-Holy Spirit. You became invincible among emperors, and to your Creator you conferred as a donation the Empire. How did Constantine subdue the Empire and how did Christ subdue Constantine? In 305, Constantine escaped to the West from those who had begun to plot against him to be with his father on a campaign in Britain. When his father died a year later, Constantine was proclaimed by his soldiers' successor to his father's throne. Once he took control of the West, Constantine's position and power was constantly under threat by the rulers of the Empire in the East and his co-ruler in the West. They plotted constantly to overthrow him. So in 312, he took a gamble and he marched into Italy against them. Edward Gibbons describes this march and the Battle of the Milvern Bridge in 312, expressing the greatest admiration for Constantine's conduct, abilities and skills. This is what he writes. The whole enterprise was full of danger as of glory. He marched to encounter an enemy whose numbers were at least four times superior to his own. The swiftness of Constantine's march to Italy and his victory was like the rapid conquest of Italy by the first Caesars of the Empire. Gibbon also admires the way Constantine behaved with modesty and dignity after his victorious battle. In the Christian account that we are all familiar with, the day before this crucial battle, Constantine saw in the sky after midday beneath the sun a radiant pillar in the form of a cross with the words, In this sign conquer. Before this conversion experience, Constantine was moving gradually towards the Christian faith, influenced both by his mother's Christian beliefs and his pagan father's respect and tolerance towards Christians. After this conversion experience, Constantine became a devout Christian and over the next 30 years, he gradually transformed the empire. In the Matins for the Feast of St. Constantine and Helen, the hymns refer to this vision which is likened to the vision seen by the Apostle Paul. The King of kings and God, who adorns the worthy with abundant gifts, caught you in his net through the sign of the cross, like he did to Paul the glorious O Constantine. He said to you, in this sign, conquer your enemies.
Why is St. Constantine regarded as great? The Roman Empire was one of the great empires of the world. Due to the Roman Empire's vast extent and long history, the institutions and culture of Rome, together with that of ancient Greece, had a profound and lasting influence on the development of language, religion, architecture, philosophy, law and forms of government in Europe and Western civilization. It was this Greco-Roman Empire that St. Constantine transformed into a Christian empire. Because of him, all the persecutions against the church ceased. At that time, Christians were a significant minority in the empire. They made up about 10% of the population. The Edict of Milan, which was issued by Constantine, did not establish Christianity at first as the state religion, but it granted religious freedom to all, whereby Christians were given the right to worship their God freely. He repealed all laws against Christians and had all churches that was confiscated returned. Throughout the empire there was joy among the Christians as hundreds of Christians left prison or returned from exile and as churches began to be raised from their ruins. Pagans expressed shock at the sudden reversal brought about by Constantine's edict. Even though the empire for several years was still officially pagan, the emperor made it obvious that it was the most favoured religion. He did not persecute pagans, but he made sure that he did not cultivate a friendship with them either. In 325, in an edict on religion, he favours Christianity over paganism. In 326, Constantine went to Rome to celebrate the 20th anniversary of his reign. He was called upon as emperor to offer an idolatrous offering since the empire was still officially pagan. He refused and his refusal was felt like a thunderbolt. The Senate was shocked and outraged. That may may be part of the reason why he moved the capital of the Roman Empire to the east, to the city of Byzantium, which he renamed Constantinople to detach himself and the empire from its pagan centre. During Vespers of the Feast of St Constantine, we read from the Old Testament Book of Kings, a passage which refers to Solomon. And we can picture Constantine the Great expressing the same emotions as Solomon. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and he spread out his hands towards heaven and he said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. Constantine encouraged the spread of Christianity in every way and made profound changes to Roman law, bringing it under the influence of the gospel. Christianity under Constantine gradually became the main religion of the empire and eventually triumphed over paganism, so that by 380 Christianity was declared the state religion by the emperor Theodosius. In this way, Constantine transformed Christianity from a persecuted minority into an established majority religion and he changed the pagan state of classical Rome into the Christian empire of the Byzantine era. Constantine deeply revered the Holy Cross of the Lord and he wanted to find the actual cross upon which our Lord Jesus Christ was crucified. For this purpose he sent his own mother, the Holy Empress Helen, to Jerusalem granting her both power and money. Patriarch Macarius of Jerusalem and St. Helen began the search and through the will of God the life-creating cross was miraculously discovered in 326. 
He ordered the construction of great and beautiful churches throughout the empire, and in this way he ensured for the church a public presence. Through these constructions, Rome eventually was transformed into an apostolic see, Jerusalem was rebuilt as a centre of pilgrimage, and Constantinople became the glorious new capital with the grand churches of Hagia Sophia and the Holy Apostles. The empire was soon disturbed by quarrels and heresies. Particularly dangerous for the church was the rise of the Arian heresy. As emperor, Constantine had the right to decide on any issue that affected the empire. However, instead of deciding himself, he called on a synod of bishops, and so the first ecumenical council was convened in the city of Nicaea, in 325. St. Constantine's calling of the First Ecumenical Council laid the foundation for future councils which were so significant in developing Orthodox doctrine. After the Council of Nicaea, St. Constantine continued with his active role in the welfare of the church and state. He declared Sunday a day of rest throughout the empire. He abolished the sentence of death by crucifixion. He forbade gladiatorial contests. He severely punished rape and sexual assault. He limited divorce, he condemned adultery, and he legislated on the rights of inheritance. He gave abundant alms to those in need, whether Christians or not, and he protected the poor against the demands of the powerful and the rich. He outlawed branding on the faces of slaves, and he gave them the ability to become free. During Vespers, we refer to all this when we chant. You who love humanity gave to your servant St. Constantine the good judgment of Solomon and also the gentleness of the prophet David and the orthodoxy of the apostles, as you are the King of kings and the Lord of those who lord. Finally, after 30 years of rule and after being baptised, which he had been preparing for for his whole life, St. Constantine died on the day of Pentecost in the year 337 and was buried in the Church of the Holy Apostles. In Constantinople, the locals would say and also chant that the grave of Constantine the Great heals people. They would say that his miracles were like the miracles of St. Spiridon. And so we chant in Vespers, Your coffin pours out healings, Constantine. The peer of the apostles earnestly intercede on behalf of our souls. St. Constantine the Great was converted by a revelation similar to that of St. Paul the Apostle and was able through his labours to bring the colossal Roman Empire to the feet of Christ, and for this he has been glorified above all other emperors on this earth, as we declare with this final hymn during the matins of his feast day. You are the pride and joy of the fathers. O rejoice! You are the first of all Christian emperors. Rejoice, believers, joy!
Orthodox Spiritual Reflection with Constantino Collias. What do I do if there is no Orthodox Church near me? When our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ was asked, Teach us to pray, he started with the words, Our Father. He did not say, My Father. In this way, he was teaching us that it is not God and me, rather, it is God and us. Common worship means coming together as a group and worshipping God. We do this with prayer, doxology, song, with our hearts, our minds and our bodies, together in one space. This is a foundational aspect, not only of the Orthodox Church, but of the whole of creation. The other aspect of common worship is that we get to see each other, We talk to each other, we embrace, we share a meal, we give each other strength, friendship, advice and love. We are family. Finally, it is only in the embrace of common worship where we can partake of the sacraments. It is only together that we will eat and drink the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is our spiritual food and drink, giving us strength to fight the good fight. So the question is, what if there is no Orthodox Church nearby? The answer is, go to the nearest Orthodox Church as often as you can afford. There are many people today who are happy to travel 300 kilometers or more to attend church on a Sunday. There are others who travel 500 kilometers and sleep over in another city so that they can attend church in the morning. There are priests who travel over a thousand kilometers on a weekend so that these people can worship together. So how far is too far? Well, how strong is your passion for Christ? How much do you love your Orthodox Christian family? How far are you willing to go to share worship and communion with them? And when it is really impossible? For the last two months or so, it has been impossible for us to reach our beloved churches, our Orthodox Christian family.
Something so minuscule, a virus, has caused the greatest distance between us and church. Overnight, all of us now fall into this category. There is no Orthodox Church near me. On Sunday morning, let us stand before our icons, light our candili and incense burner. Let us read the Tipika prayers, which can be found in the Orthodox prayer books, chanting with our own voice as many hymns as we can, and reading and contemplating the Gospel reading for each day. Of course, these days we have technology, allowing us to watch the divine services or sermons over the internet, television and radio. During this time, many churches have made use of this tool, streaming services so that the faithful can follow along from home. On some websites, such as agesinitiatives.com, we also can read the full text of the worship services for each day. After this, let's sit and read a spiritual text, perhaps the life of a saint, for an hour or two. Before we know it, we will have spent half of our Sunday with the Lord. All these acts of personal worship are blessed. They increase our appetite for the next opportunity when we can travel again to the nearest Orthodox Church for common worship. All of us hunger for the Kingdom of Heaven, in which we will never be alone. How joyful and blessed that day will be when we will gather once again as an Orthodox Christian family for common worship. How much more happiness will we experience if we are made worthy to enter into the joy of our Lord in the Kingdom of Heaven.